and adults. If you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, um, we're going to sort of use this as a, a bit of a jumping off point for what we're going to be discussing this evening. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 5 and then verses 9 and 10 in just a moment. Again, we're considering our look at uh, the threefold office of Christ, how he is prophet, priest, and king. And we have spent the last, I don't know, forever, it seems like, looking at the priestly office of Christ and what he does as priest. And now, one of the things that we have been seeing with these offices is that these offices were something that mankind was originally created to enjoy, that we were created to be prophets, priests, and kings before the Lord, that Adam was charged with the Word of God, and so the prophetic office was something that he sought to uh, fill out as he provided that Word to Eve, and, and then subsequent, subsequent, the next generation. <laughs> so, um, so he was, the idea was that for the next generations, he would be providing the Word of God to them as well. Um, we saw that uh, as priest, he was able to have unrestricted access before God. He could come before God, and it was the way that it's described in Genesis chapter 3. God was coming down as it was sort of the same manner or the common thing that he would do to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we saw that the kingly office is something that was placed upon him as he's called to have dominion and to subdue the earth and, and to exercise dominion over it. And so those three roles, prophet, priest, and king, were what we were designed for. But we know that sin came into the world, and it affected our ability to fulfill these roles. And that is why Christ is needed to come and to be the true fulfillment of what we've been created for. Uh, Christ is the one who comes, and he perfectly fulfills the role of prophet. He perfectly fulfills the role of priest, and he perfectly fulfills the role of king. And by trusting in Him and being united to Him by faith, we now are restored to be able to carry on these three roles again. And so we've seen that as believers, we are entrusted with the gospel. We entrusted to preach the word and to be prophets in that sense. And we talked about how we oftentimes think of prophecy as foretelling what's going to happen. But in reality, the main purpose of the prophets was to forth tell the truth of God, to call people to repentance and dependence on Him. And so naturally, as the role of prophet is something that we're restored to have as we are in Christ, we're now going to look at how we are restored through Christ to be priests. And so we're going to be talking about this week um, and possibly, most likely, probably next week, um, the priesthood of all Believers, the priesthood of all believers. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And if you look at our passage this, this evening, 1 Peter chapter 2, if you look at verse 5, he speaks, Peter, of these pilgrims 
that we ourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house and that we are destined to be a what? A holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then it's repeated again in verse 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not, had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's really interesting is Peter draws attention to all three of these offices in verses 9 and 10. We are a priesthood, we are a royal priesthood, and we see that we are called to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. All three of the offices are discussed by what Peter brings out here, but particularly as we've been looking at the priestly office of Christ, showing how Christ is better than Melchizedek, is of a line that is separate and apart from the Levitical priesthood, we find now this call that what Christ has done as He has saved us, and as we are in Him, united to Him by faith, we all now are priesthood. Priests, every believer is a priest before God. Let's pray, and then we'll start working through um, our uh, subject matter this evening. Father, Lord, it is a wondrous privilege for us to, at this moment, come before your presence. Lord, we need no priest. We need no uh, mediator between us except your Son, our high priest. And as he is our high priest, he has made us a kingdom of priests to you. And so, Father, we find great hope and encouragement in this truth that there is no longer a need for us to go through any mediator, but we can come boldly into your presence. Father, guide and direct our time this evening. May we carefully consider what your word has to say. And, Father, may we um, take advantage of this great privilege that we have by your grace in Christ, that we are priests to God. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. So what I want us to do to begin with is talk about why I think this particular concept or this doctrine, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, is greatly needed in our day and age. Now, it's not that it wasn't needed before, and it's not that it's not going to be needed um, afterwards, but particularly for us here in western Pennsylvania, I think it's important that we understand the necessity of understanding this truth. Why is it a need? And really in my notes here, I actually have it called the desperate need for the priesthood of all believers. Why is this significant? Why should we be spending time talking and thinking about this? And I think particularly in our area, you know, Western Pennsylvania is not known as a stronghold of the Bible Belt. It's not known as a, as a big, you know, they don't have giant Baptist churches everywhere here in Western Pennsylvania. But you can drive three or four miles, and what will you find? Many Roman Catholic churches, many Orthodox churches in this area. 
And so I think it's important for us, particularly in this area, that we understand how Roman Catholicism has exploited this um, concept for their own benefit. And, and I think it's important that we recognize this so that we can combat the tendencies that we find in the world around us, a tendency that even I think sometimes we fall into uh, because of how commonplace it is in our society here in the Pittsburgh area. Now, one of the things that Catholicism has done, so if, if you think about the church, all right, before the Protestant Reformation, before Luther nailed his 95 thesis, there was one church, if you will, and it was the Roman Catholic Church. Now, there were other dissenters and other groups out there, but pretty much if you were going to go to church, you were going to go to a church that was headed by the Pope in Rome and that was particularly focused on Catholic doctrine, Roman Catholic doctrine. Very early on, Catholicism uh, began to make a distinction between the minister's and everybody else, the congregation. And this is what we call the clergy-laity distinction. Um, so I, like, I particularly don't like the term clergy or, or the idea that I'm a reverend because I've been ordained or those type of things uh, because I think it's, it sets up and continues in, the, um, in, in this type of, of wrong thinking about how God's church is meant to work. And this clergy-lady distinction becomes a very big thing in Roman Catholicism. Now, Catholicism technically believes in what they call a common priesthood of all believers. Now, one of the reasons why they will say that is because, what did we just read in the Bible, all right? You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, And so they they believe that all baptized believers have a common priesthood about them. But they also believe that there is a secondary, special, intercessory role that exists for men who have taken what they call holy orders. So if you understand the, the, the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church, one of the things that they will speak of in, in the, one of these sacraments is that you have to either be married or you have to take holy orders. Those are your, those are your two choices. You can either be married to a man or a woman or you can be married to the church, essentially. That's the, the concept that they have there. And those who are choosing to take holy orders, to enter into seminary and, and to learn um, the, the formal and receive the formal training necessary to become a quote-unquote um, pastor... They don't call them pastors. What do they call them? Priests. They call them priests. They enter into a formal clerical profession of the Catholic Church. Now, this requires them to make some genuine sacrifices, right? To this day, and it's still very hotly debated in the Roman Catholic Church, but Roman Catholic priests take a vow of celibacy. They're not able to to marry um, as Roman Catholic priests. The same thing with nuns. Nuns have made a a choice that they're not going to be married. They also take a vow of, um, of poverty or, or an idea that they are forsaking all worldly possessions. So there are serious, I mean, it's a serious thing that they do when they enter into this. And then all other Catholics then are, have the choice, if you're not going to take holy orders, then you're supposed to get married. And that's how you fulfill 
the, the, this sacrament of marriage or holy orders. Now, the primary duty of Roman Catholic priests is to administer what they call the Eucharist. All right, now, that, now, their idea of priesthood or these priests is that they stand as representatives for Christ before the rest of the congregation. And again, this is seen primarily in their administration of the Eucharist. Now, when we were to go back and look at the priests in the Old Testament, what was the main thing that priests did? They offered what? Sacrifices. And so Roman Catholic doctrine today teaches that the priests, those who are the the ministers in the Roman Catholic Church, they are offering a sacrifice. What is that sacrifice? In their minds, it is Christ Himself again. And this is where their doctrine of transubstantiation comes in uh, to play because they, they do physically believe that these elements change to become the body and blood of Christ and that these priests act as mediators before the congregation to offer Christ again and again and again and again to the Father. In fact, um, it's interesting. There's a, uh, there's a post. I was going to read the entire post here uh, this evening, but I don't have the time to do that. Um, it was a post on a, a blog called Catholic Answers. And on that post, they were talking about the objection that Protestants have towards the Roman Catholic doctrine of, priest, of these priests. And it amazed me how in this particular post, they didn't quote any scripture. They quoted the church fathers, which if you understand anything about Roman Catholic doctrine, they hold the tradition of the church on the same level as scripture. And essentially in this post, they were quoting these Roman Catholic uh, fathers, people like Ignatius and, and uh, uh, I think uh, Cyrene, uh, a bishop or whatever that, that was there. And all their evidence for why they continued as priests was because these guys said that as the pastors or the elders presented the Eucharist or presented the Lord's Supper to the people that they were acting as priests. So they administer the Eucharist. But that's not all they do in their priestly duties. There's another thing they do. And they receive confession and absolve sin. Again, the priest, as Christ's representative, and therefore only through Christ, is the one who hears the confessions of God's people and then offers absolution to them, speaking certain Latin phrases over them as they confess their sins to the priest, and then calling them to do acts of penance, which is part of the, uh, the sacramental system that they have. Now, again, they will tell you that, th- that it's not the priest themselves that is offering this, but they are standing in lieu of Christ to do this. And then the final thing that we see them doing is, as priests is they will administer the sacraments. And that includes, again, the Eucharist. We talked about that, but they will also do baptisms. They do funerals. They, they forge marriages, all those different types of things. Now, that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, and that's the function that a priest has in the Roman Catholic system. Um, and the authority that the priest has when they act in that role is the authority of the church. 
Roman Catholicism teaches that the church is not just called to preach the gospel, but the church becomes the organism that transmits the gospel, that provides the grace of the gospel. That the gospel is not just a call um, to repent and believe in Christ, but it is a way of life, and that one can only live that way of life as they do it in accordance and in submission to the Roman Catholic Church itself. That a life must be lived according to the traditions and requirements of the church. Now, now this is where I talk about that this, there's this idea of spiritual exploitation. That's all well and good if everyone that was a priest was always a kind, generous, um, um, you know, uh, going along with everybody and doing what's best for everybody. That would be fine, of course. Setting aside the fact that it's not biblical, all right? So it's not fine. I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's fine what they're teaching. But from a religious standpoint, that would be just like any other religion, except the Catholic Church abused that clerical grace that they were given. Uh, if you think about it, if you had to come to a priest to confess your sins, if you had to come to a priest to receive and to commune with the body of believers in the Lord's Supper, if you had to come to a priest to be baptized, if, if the priest is the one who holds the grace of God in his hands, doesn't that set the priest up in a place of great power? And that's exactly what happened. We can look back through history and we can see throughout the Middle Ages it was only the priests who were educated. If you wanted to be able to read, if you wanted to be able to write, if you wanted to be able to, to move up in society, you would go the way of the church. You would, go, you would take those holy orders. You would seek to become a priest. They were the ones who were wealthy and provisioned. As death was a common occurrence in the Middle Ages, it was a a way for them to leverage that power over people who didn't know if they were going to wake up the next morning. And so, if, I mean, if you're literally looking and thinking, I could die tonight, I need to make sure that my soul is right with the Lord, so guess what? Here's this big organization that says, I can make sure you're right as long as you do, or what became increasingly more of an issue, as long as you pay the right amount of money, we can make sure that you're okay for eternity. And so while they held that power in requiring certain actions from the faithful in the church that soon became pointed towards a financial goal. Soon financial requirements accompanied the acts of penance and there was a practice that the Roman Catholic Church put into place called indulgences. Indulgences were essentially paying for future grace. Paying somebody and paying the church so that you could go out and actually commit a sin and it be absolved before the fact. Now this extra grace that was available for the right price, it was only available from the Roman Catholic Church. They had a monopoly. And so it left it rife for abuse. It left it rife for people, for the church, exploiting the genuine concerns of individuals in Europe 
and really across the world. So, what happened? Well, there's this, this cranky old, well, not old, but this cranky, old, this cranky German who was a priest in a place called Wittenberg. And he was cranky only in the sense that he felt an increasing weight of sin upon his life. And he followed everything the church had said. He took those holy orders. He was a brilliant mind. He dedicated himself greatly towards the work of the church. And the more and more he tried, the more and more he attempted to follow the church's prescription for him to have peace for his soul, the more and more burdened he became at his own sin. This, of course, is Martin Luther. Luther was someone who went to the greatest extremes to try to to actually beat his body. He would whip himself and tear open his skin to try to keep himself from sin. Well, ultimately, as he was reading God's Word and he came to Romans chapter 1, there was a, a great work of God's grace in his heart. And he read about the righteousness of God, which for so long had been something that he viewed as a punitive truth about God, that God was so righteous that all he would do was punish those who were not equal in righteousness with him. But as he read Romans chapter 1, he looked at the righteousness of God, and it took on a new view, a new fresh meaning by the work of the Holy Spirit where he saw the righteousness of God not as that which is there to judge him, but the righteousness of God that he has by faith in Jesus Christ so that he could be accepted before the Lord. And this led to the discovery or the rediscovery, if you will, of the doctrine of justification by faith. As the scripture tells us, the just shall live by what? Faith. This became a huge atom bomb in the Roman Catholic Church. But it's interesting. Luther had been discussing this and considering the the significance of this, but in 1517, on All Hallows' Eve, when he went to the church chapel in Wittenberg and he nailed his 95 thesis to the door there, you know that the point of what he was objecting to was not justification by faith. Does anyone know what it was? It was indulgences. He attacked the very thing that the Roman Catholic Church had been abusing because they said that they were the only priests that could come before God. And Luther pointed out all the abuses and all the ways that the church had been fleecing the flock. And so, as he understood and came to recognize the truth of justification by faith, along with that came his understanding of what we call the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Luther, in seeking to reform the church, sought not only to bring a return to justification by faith alone, but to rid the church of this clergy-lay distinction. Luther is quoted as saying, It is pure invention that Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are to be called the spiritual estate, 
princes, lords, artisans, and farmers, the temporal estate. On the contrary, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. And there is among them no difference at all but that of office. And what he means by that is of what you're doing in your life, what your occupation is. He goes on, there is no true basic difference between layman and priests, between religious and secular, except for the sake of office and work, but not for the sake of status. They are all of the spiritual estate. All are truly priests, bishops, and popes, but they do not all have the same work to do. As you can imagine, if you are a huge organization that has immense power and is accumulating wealth in untold speed, in the Middle Ages, at, when people are at their poorest, the church is getting richer and richer. And this guy comes on the scene and he starts making a bunch of noise saying, look, we don't need to go to the church to be right with God. We can come by faith in Christ alone. Do you think that's going to bother a powerful organization? And very soon there are what's called papal bulls lift, lit, lit, um, that are sent out. These are edicts by the Pope condemning what Luther was teaching and condemning Luther himself and essentially saying that if someone wants to kill Martin Luther, no big deal. It's not murder. You can be forgiven of that. But Luther sparked through his rediscovery of the priesthood of all believers a fire that would spread across Europe. It would go on to influence men like John Calvin in Geneva as, as Calvin would begin to form and, and really, really solidify the doctrine of the Reformation and, and focus on the implications of what it means to be united to Christ by faith. It would continue to spread into England as England would soon cast off its Catholic um, approach to things, and yet it still would struggle back and forth this fire would burn all across the Western world as the Western world, by God's grace, experienced a revival, a revival that was driven by the fact that you do not need any longer a human priest. What did Paul tell Timothy? How many mediators are there between God and man? There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Well, fast forward 500 years. Is it five? Yeah, 500 years. And we're here in 2022. It's actually been a little over 500 years since Luther nailed that um, 95 thesis to the Wittenberg Chapel. Guess what the Roman... Does the Roman Catholic Church change their view on these things? And the reality is, no. They still recognize in their catechism, in their official documents, that... It is the priest offering Christ to the congregation as a mediator. They still have confession where faithful Catholics must go and confess their sins not directly to God but to a priest and it is that priest who offers absolution to them for their sins. You know, it's, it's always interesting to me as I interact with people outside of the congregation here, or new people come in that maybe have a Catholic background, and over and over again, people will call me 
father. And I say, no, I'm not your father. I'm not a priest. I'm just a proclaimer of Christ, the true priest. And so as we've looked at and seen all of these wonderful truths that Christ is the better priest, better than Levi, better than Melchizedek, he is certainly a greater high priest than any man that walks this earth. And so in the world in which we live today, we still need to recognize that this error of seeking to put man in the place of Christ continues. And it's done for the sake of exploiting those who are underneath them. Now, let's not be just hard on the Catholics because we're Protestants, right? I mean, that's what to be Protestant is to protest. And we need to recognize that, particularly where we are today. But I would say that this is still existing in a different form in quote unquote Protestant evangelical churches today, or those churches that claim to be evangelical, and we see it in the modern health and wealth gospel. It is amazing to me as, as this very popular form of error has arisen in the church today, how similar it is to Catholicism, which brings up really, really the idea, is there anything new under the sun? No. The same errors that, that existed hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, they continue to persist today. And we see it in the health and wealth abuses. We see this in the idea of modern apostles and prophets. Now, there is a doctrine that's called continuationism. I am what's called a cessationist. And as a cessationist, I believe that the sign gifts, things like tongues and, and, uh, and healing and interpretation of tongues and those different types of things, that they are no longer in effect, that they were given to accompany the proclamation of the gospel, and that even when we get to the point of where the book of Hebrews is being written, those gifts are now beginning to fade from the scene because the need wasn't there anymore. The Word of God was being given, the church was growing, and there was a, a good spiritual foundation in what God had given through the apostles. But there are those who disagree with that, and they are what's called continuationists. And they believe that these sign gifts are for us today. Now, now here's the problem with saying, one of the things that, that is implied by saying that signs and wonders continue if you're going to say that these certain miraculous gifts which accompanied the apostles, and Hebrews chapter 2 makes it abundantly clear that that's why they were given, if they're continuing, then guess what else then should probably continue? If they're meant to accompany the work of the apostles, then guess who else is still here? The apostles. And so this led, this idea of continuationist doctrine, it ends up, bringing people to claim to have special intuition, special giftedness from the Holy Spirit, and they can be the ones that can offer apostolic grace to God's people. They're the ones that can bring special announcements into people's lives. They can speak truth into a person's life. And it doesn't need the, the Bible to do this. They can just do it on the fly because they're the apostle. They're the prophet. Now, in, if, if you are someone who claims 
to have a special infusion of the Holy Spirit to provide grace that other people aren't gifted to provide that grace in, do you think that can be exploited? Yes. You ever heard somebody on a television program talk about sowing a seed gift into their ministry and that God will release it to them sevenfold? Taking God's Word and twisting it and distorting it so that people who are poor hear that, are undiscerning, and they will empty their bank accounts to fill the coffers of these these wolves in sheep's clothing that are fleecing the flock. Again, they are standing and saying that you have to come through me to receive special grace from God. Just like the Catholic Church said, you have to come through the church, through the priest, to receive this special grace. So modern apostles and prophets abuse this idea. But there's also another sort of subset of this where people will talk about how they are anointed preachers and healers. That there is almost this idea of apostolic secession that is alive and well in the anointed preachers and healers today. So there's, I looked up, um, this is particularly common in Pentecostal, uh, in the Pentecostal denomination. And I looked up some of the most influential Pentecostals uh, today. And there were names that you probably heard, Ted Haggard and, um, and that guy with the airplane, I can't think of his name. Uh, but, you know, he, he got in a whole bunch of trouble about, he, he rides in an airplane because he can't have the demons in the, air, in the airplane when he rides in a regular airplane. It was ridiculous. But one of them is someone over in Ohio, I think the Columbus area. Uh, he's the pastor of World Harvest Church, and he, his name is Rod Parsley. Have, you, have any of you heard of Rod Parsley? All right, if you haven't, good for you. If you had, have, we'll talk about him. Um, I like to watch Rod Parsley, not because I agree with what he says, but because he is a dynamic speaker. Like, he really can hold and captivate. He has a, a passion, a fire about him that I just, I just find enthralling. But then when you actually hear what he's saying, it's so far away from what the Bible's saying that you just can say, well, it's a bunch of, uh, it's a bunch of bravo. Uh, uh, what, not bravo. Brio? Bravado. Bravado. It's a bunch of bravado, but there's really no substance to it. Over there, I think it's in Columbus, he has a college called Valor Christian College. And if you go to the about section of Valor Christian College, they talk about what they're truly about. Now, again, there are hundreds if not thousands of Christian colleges in America today. So what sets Valor Christian College apart from the rest of them? Why should you send your children, or why would you as a college student go to Valor Christian College. And this is from their website. It says, The word that best describes Valor Christian College is impartation. Now, it would be great if they're talking about the impartation of Christ's righteousness to us. It would be great if they're talking about the impartation of the Holy Spirit to all believers. But that is not what they're talking about. They go on, It defines the spiritual atmosphere at Valor impartation is the spiritual heritage transferred from 
And then we're going to hear a bunch of names that you've maybe heard, not heard of, except for the last one, I think. Smith Wigglesworth. I mean, that sounds like he's out of a Charles Dickens novel or whatever, but he's a real person. Smith Wigglesworth transferred spiritual heritage to Howard Carter, who then transferred that, that, that spiritual heritage to a guy named Dr. Lester Summerall. I don't know if you've heard of that name, but he was a little bit more current. And then he passed that spiritual heritage on to Pastor Rod Parsley. The mantle of anointing was passed to Pastor Parsley, and it ignites the Bible college with fire. Students are exposed to this infusion of power in the classrooms, chapels, and World Harvest Church services. Some things are taught, but the impartation can only be caught. Now, that's a, that's a snappy, catchy tagline. But if that impartation only exists at valor, then where do I have to go to get it? Valor. And it becomes a way of them to, and again, I don't know, I can't speak for everything, I don't know that much about this college, but you can see the appeal and how that can be used to exploit people. All of this is a continuation of what mankind has been doing from the beginning, trying to put our place in the place of Christ. The Roman Catholic Church has been doing that by setting up its priests as go-betweens, as mediators between God and man. And the modern health and wealth, Pentecostal and charismatic movement does the same exact thing. Taking away from God's people that which is theirs by their rights of being united to Christ. So we need to understand this doctrine. I, I, I think that if we truly grasp what it means to have and be a priest before God by virtue of our union with Christ, it will protect us from these abuses. It will protect us from these errors. Which brings us then to look at, and we'll spend the next few minutes talking about how this is the foundation, or we'll look at the foundation of the priesthood of all believers. See, the reality is, is the abuses that we see in Roman Catholicism, the abuses we see in the charismatic movement, all those things have no support in Scripture. But you know what does have support in Scripture? That if you are trusting in Christ, you are a priest before the Lord. We've seen and we talked about this briefly, how this is the pattern of creation. We have been created to be priests before our God. God's design from the beginning was that humanity would relate to Him without any encumbrances, without any mediators, that we would be able to fellowship with God directly, that His presence would be a welcome thing among mankind. And of course, we know sin distorted and changed that and, 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 and ripped that reality from us. When God comes in the garden, it's not a welcome thing for Adam and Eve. What do they do? They hide themselves. They were afraid of God. And so 
creation is, we were created to live before him, but what we then see is that there is a constant failure of human priests. The first being our father and mother, Adam and Eve. They failed to relate to God because they sought to do it on their own terms. You know, the, there was nothing magic about that fruit that Adam and Eve took of. It was fruit. I don't know. People say that it was a pomegranate or whatever. Who knows what it was? But the reality was that they showed by their rebellion to God their desire to be in His place. In fact, they wanted to not just be priests before God, they wanted to be God Himself. And so... They plunged humanity into a world of sin. And this is emphasized for us in some of the things we've seen already. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2. He, the human priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he, the human priest, is what? Beset with weakness. The argument that the writer of Hebrews is given here in Hebrews 5, and I won't rehash what we've already looked at and talked about, but he's making the point that Christ is a better priest because does Christ have any weakness? No. But human priests are beset with weakness. It's all around us. It surrounds us. It's in us and through us and all over us. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, he goes on to talk about how the law appoints men in their what? Weakness as high priests. And so this points to the fact that human priests and the efforts of human priests can never truly satisfy God's requirement. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, it, it is folly when we understand what the Bible tells us about what the priesthood of, the, of, of mankind brings. It is absolute folly to think that any man could stand before God for any other man. It is not possible for the priestly work of men to truly intercede before God. God. So we were created to be priests before God. Sin distorted, corrupted, destroyed that ability as we not sought to fellowship with God, but we withdrew in fear. And from that point forward, every single human priest is chocked full with weakness, unable to please God. But praise God, what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy is that there is a mediator. Just one. The man, Christ Jesus. And next week we'll pick up looking at the hope of the high priestly office of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Lord, we thank You for Your love, Lord. And Father, as we have looked at and seen that there is 
a multitude of error, that men will abuse your word, they'll abuse the truth of the gospel for their own advantage so that they can fleece the flock. Father, by your Spirit's work within us, continue to show us the glories of the fact that we are priests to you. That, Father, there is only one mediator, and that it is Christ. And that being in Christ, we are now a royal priesthood. Father, thank you that there is no longer a need to come through a man as a priest, but that our only hope is and has only ever been in Christ, our great high priest. Father, may we recognize that glorious privilege And Father, may we take advantage of that joy throughout our week this week. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading His blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.